listeners, and welcome to the Unions 21 podcast with me, Simon Sapper. And me, Becky Wright, the director of Unions 21. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello, listeners. You're very welcome. I'm glad that you're along to, to join us for this podcast. Yeah. We're recording this um, in a slightly different environment, right by the Ooh. Thames, just by the side of the House of Commons, because we're about to go in and speak to the legend that is Kevin Maguire, associate editor of the Daily Mirror. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Well, well me, as, me as well. But, but listeners, that's not for this podcast. That's for the next one that will come yeah. out in a couple of weeks. This podcast, we have an even more uh, luminous uh, and important sp- uh, special guest, and that's yeah. Frances O'Grady, General Secretary of the TUC. And we'll, be, we'll be hearing from her I- I- in just a moment. But before we do that, uh, the usual roundup of what's been happening in the news as far as Unionland is concerned. Becky, what's, what's caught your eye? Well, what caught my eye was yesterday was the uh, release of the new Fabian's report as commissioned by Community on the future of private sector trade unions. I know you've had a little read of it as well, Simon. Your, your I have, thoughts? I have. Well, I mean, I think, I think the good news is that, that the arguments that are advanced in the pamphlet uh, can never be restated too often. No, the, I the, would the, agree the with that. The need for innovation in organisation, the need to act smarter as well as to, wor- as well as to work harder, the importance of a renaissance in private sector trade unionism is all important. And the second really good point is that the Fabians are on board for this. Uh, a lot of very bright people in the Fabians, probably going to be leading politicians in the next decade and beyond, maybe. So it's good to have these are these are good people yeah. to have as friends. Yeah, I, th- I, I mean, I think that it can't be understated how important it is for us to have a conversation, regardless of whether we uh, agree with all the points in any papers. The point is we're talking about it, we're thinking about it and also that we're not just sitting there and having a go at ourselves for being rubbish, that we're actually kind of saying, look, this is the state of play, this is where we're at and we need to try some new things. What are we going to try and how are we going to do it? And I thought the paper gave some real food for thought about where private sector organising could go and how that should look like. I was really, with my kind of education hat on, I was really intrigued by um, one of the ideas for unions to do uh, career development support. That for one people. stood out to me as well. I thought that was that was very new, yeah, actually. Yeah, I mean, I used to organise the um, CPD uh, uh, learning for one of the unions that I worked for, amongst the rep- other things, including the reps program, and. I always thought it was a really good thing for the union to be doing some of that continuing professional development for people. But actually, the important thing with that is not just deliver that, that service or to have that. Partly it's to get employers on board as well and to get them contributing to that because you don't want you know continuing professional development only to be shouldered by the worker and the employee and the union, but also you know engagement from an employer on that one. But also that it very clearly helped to forward the union's organising agenda as well and thinking about how it was maybe the first step of engagement for people on a, on a union ladder. Well, I, I think that's right. And it's not just on a union ladder, it's in an industrial sector as well, which Absolutely. I know is not, is, is not the dominant model of, of, of the labour market that it was. But it's more than for me, it was more than just uh, continuing professional development. It, it's, it's an introduction to the world of work yeah, a, a, yeah, a, a, yeah. and opening up pathways into work itself. And that collaboration with oh, employers to, to yeah. forge those pathways, I think, yeah, yeah. could be really well, a, a real add value. And, and I should say that, I mean, I've also experienced doing that as well. You know, so there are unions that are already kind of doing it. When I uh, was a tutor at the um, College of North East London, we would take the people who'd failed the bus driver exams 
uh, like the literacy and the numeracy tests and we would help them get onto the platform so they could you know, do do that work and mm-hmm, become a bus mm-hmm. driver and that was all through Unite. Well, I am, I'm thinking that there are whole swathes of the country and the economy where there is next to no union presence or union input. What a great thing it would be for, for the unions collectively to sh- literally sh- set up shop in, in, in a, sm- a small to medium-sized town to say, we're the unions, this is sure. what it's all about. You come to us, you've got a better chance yeah. of a gate, finding a gateway in, in, into work. I think that could be tremendously Oh, you know what it powerful. makes me think of? It makes me think of the Working Men's College, Ruskin, well, Northern College well, it's and not the a WEA. New thing. It's not a new thing, you know. Um, <laughs> We've done this before. What, what, go, what, what, what kind of goes around... C- comes around, I think. So that's that's interesting, and also interestingly, some very heavyweight people on that on the on the, the advisory board of that of that publication. Yeah, Mel, yeah. Mel Sims, uh, for, for for example, Kevin Rome from TUC, uh, Sue Ferns from Prospect. I'll see. The, yeah. uh, you know, lots of people with with good ideas, good pedigree. John Park from Community as well. Lots of you know some very, you know, it's got it's got some weight behind it. Yeah, it has. I mean, and I think with all things like this the question for the union movement should be okay what's next what does this actually mean for us and how are we going to take it forward how do you measure it how do you measure it yeah exactly i mean i think there needs to be increasing room for for innovation or just just trying stuff literally we're almost we're back at that point aren't we where it's like throw the kitchen sink at it and see what sticks i'm sure that's a a bad analogy but you know what i mean you know basically what we have to do is we have to say look we're gonna not succeed on a few things but we've got to try something to know whether it's going to work or not absolutely the other side to that of course is actually how do we measure that success how do we think about its scalability so how do we think about the transfer from one union to another or scaling up a project um, and how do we how do we actually kind of do these evaluations that have weight and meaning? And as a union movement, where do we come together to do that? Absolutely. I mean, uh, I think a crucial next step is to form a consensus on two points. First, that we do need to move into a testing laboratory, throw the kitchen sink at it type, type of mode. The o- old organising models may work, but actually they need to be joined by a load of new ones as, as well. And, and secondly, a consensus about what success looks like. Yeah. And that, I think that's, that, that's really important. Um, one success that we can chalk up this week, since we were last with you listeners, is in the Uber case. And I think that is a tremendous victory for, for the GMB, particularly who, yeah. who, who, who backed the case uh, on behalf of, behalf of their members. And shame on Uber for saying, oh, we lost, we lost the first case, we lost the second case, we're going to have to find a way around this. Well, hey, Uber, it's dead easy. Just treat people decently. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's not rocket not, science. Yeah, it's not hard. Just, you know, give people decent <laughs> working conditions. Well, indeed. <laughs> well, how mu- you kind of always want to go, Uber, how much money did you spend on all of those <laughs> cases? Yeah. And, and what would that translate into actually making people's working lives better? Indeed. No cheers at all for, uh, for another employer who one would hope would have done better but that's the international hotel group ihg 2012 olympics coming up into london ihg make a commitment we're going to put all our people on the london living wage and we're going to get accreditation under the london living wage and now five years later they're saying oh you know what um we don't think we're going to do that anymore i mean fair fair play they've made a lot of progress with a lot of their people in terms of moving forward on on, on, on pay particularly but there was a firm commitment given that they're now basically saying no not going to not going to do that uh and sadiq Harmon as Mayor of London has called them out over it, and I think it's quite right that he did. Yeah. Well, 
well. If you make a commitment to someone or something, you should stand by that, really. What, what price truth? What price <laughs> truth? Yeah, but of course, again, it goes, for me, it speaks to the fact that we have these kind of civil engagement aspects to raising terms and conditions at work, such as the living wage and the, the, the badge and all of that kind of stuff. But actually, when it comes to enforcement, who's going to do that? How's that ha- how does that happen? The only way that we can really enforce decent terms and conditions, legal terms and conditions as well, is through collective bargaining, is through the power of forming a union in a workplace. And so these things have to kind of come hand in hand. Well, yeah, it's very nice having a badge. Well, effective, effective workplace representation is not just when things go bad. It's about keeping things good. Yeah, and uh, making them better. So yeah, in, indeed, indeed. What else is round about? It's the TCU's Young Workers Month for it the rest is. of this month, rest yeah. of November. I see that uh, there's a webinar uh, that's going to be hosted by Claire Copeman, the redoubtable... TUC staff member who looks after uh, young uh, young workers. Uh, that should be really interesting. That should be interesting. That's going to be on the 23rd of November. So if you're listening to this before the 23rd of November, put it in your diary and register f- for it. And if you're listening to this after the 23rd of number, November, I'm sure you'll be able to find it somewhere on the TUC website. Let me go get mine now so <laughs> I can remember to do it. <laughs> uh, that's great. So that's a kind of roundup, but I think. Um, it's time to move to the main event, as it as it as it were. Yeah, <laughs> move to move to Francis. <laughs> Francis, our saviour and our guide, and that, that's not an overstatement either. Um, it was a great pleasure to to chat to her um, uh, earlier today at, yeah. con- at Congress House. I wasn't able to come, unfortunately, um, come to my old boss, but. Simon, I think it's done a fantastic job of talking to her, and uh, I'm really interested in things that Francis has to say. Francis O'Grady, General Secretary of the TUC. In our world, the most powerful person <laughs> in, in, in our movie. In our movie. World. <laughs> um, uh, thank you very much for joining us on the on, on the podcast, Francis. Um, one of the things I thought would be interesting to explore uh, as we approach the end of 2017 and we look forward to 2018 is the 150th anniversary of the of the TUC. Um, gosh, somewhere somewhere in my attic, I have a badge from the hundredth. Congress in 1968, which gives away my age, perhaps, but <laughs> it wasn't mine, I promise you. And, and I'm very conscious about what you said at Congress this year, that, that we must be a movement and not a monument. Mm-hmm. I think we're calling the words of, of Mick McGarkey, I think. Correct. You, 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 you said, Correct. So in practical terms, what, what does that mean? What can we look forward to next year in the 150th anniversary? Well, I want our 150th to be about, for sure, celebrating and honouring honouring our past and our pioneers and of course that first congress was about uh, demands on training the eight hour day a lot of people would be happy to mm, get that nowadays sure. and also the importance of winning representation for working people in parliament so in many ways that all still feels incredibly relevant but i don't think it's enough to spend our 150th patting ourselves on the back in respect of the past what we need to do is use that as a fantastic opportunity to focus on the future and we have got big big challenges Uh, you know we know that in the private sector membership and collective bargaining coverage have been slipping and that we've got this new generation of young people as I would call them the never organized many of them don't even know what a union is and yet desperately need collective support and representation. So the big challenge for us is how do we make ourselves relevant to that generation of workers and how do we 
catch up with the way that capital has changed. We've got new business models, much more fluid networks, uh, multitudes of different sorts of contracts, including you know, the infamous zero hours and agency and bogus self-employment, and lots of young people who think that's normal. We've got employers who now dominated globally by the tech giants who have overtaken uh, finance as the, the new boys on the block. What we're not doing, I think, yet is matching the way that we organise ourselves with how capital has changed. I, I mean, I think, I, I think the landscape you described is certainly one I would recognise, I'm sure all of our listeners would, would recognise. But in, ter- in terms of actually getting to people, let, let alone before you can have a conversation with people, you need to, you need to yeah. find them and be able to, 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 to reach them. Yeah. And that seems to me to be one of the biggest challenges it that we've got. It certainly is. And, you know, and it's all about people power. But what we're not doing currently is using the power of digital efficiently and effectively as a movement. I'm very conscious that we have now got millions of people out there who are not protected at all. We've been, um, we're planning to launch a major initiative in our 150th year. Uh, which is about reaching the new insecure workforce. But it does require some quite bold thinking about how we organise ourselves. We've been looking at a project that involves co-creation with hundreds of young unorganised workers in the private sector. We've been working with them very closely over months to understand their lives. They're doing, you know, video diaries, WhatsApp groups, Snapchat to help us get beneath just what their opinions are to what their values are and what would shift them towards collectivism. Because what we found so far is that young workers often have very low expectations. Well, that's nothing new. They've got nothing to judge it against. They think the way that their friends are treated, even if that's being treated really badly, is normal. So that one we know. But they've also lost trust in the ability to get together and support each other. Not even, I'm not even talking about trade unions now. I'm talking about workplaces that are so fragmented, so insecure in terms of the contracts that people are on, that we've got a big psychological barrier to get over to give people the hope that collective organisation can make their working lives better. Because this is a pretty pessimistic generation for good reason, if you look at where they are in terms of pay, homes, student debt, their prospects for the future, they feel pretty depressed about have bit their possibility of having a good working life. But it seems to me that we as a movement have, we, we've got volumes of good news stories. Yes, it's always been a struggle. Capitalism's never going to make it easy for us. Of course, of course not. But the victories that we've won, I mean, you, you go way back to uh, to, to the Maiden Dagenham uh, sure. Situation 1968, recreated racial and film through to through to safe working conditions, through to uh, you know, some of the first uh, organising uh, things I was involved in were about were, were about loo rolls, paper loo rolls rather than shiny ones. So we've got good news stories. We've got a fantastic story to tell, and we should be really proud of it. But we also need to wake up to the fact that the world has changed. We've now got many more people in private service sector. 
many more people in small and medium-sized companies or in business models that have been deliberately franchised so that people are sealed off from each other, whether that's on shifts or whether it's actually in shops. You know, you take something like the fantastic work that the Bakers Union have been doing in McDonald's, you know, a franchised operation where it is very difficult to organise beyond, you know, you have to organise shop by shop or even some of our big supermarkets that now demand unions can only get recognition shop by shop. And that's a profound challenge to the, you know, the, the basis on which we work because it, you know, we haven't got huge resources to have people outside each and every shop. We've got to find new ways to be able to bring people together. And I think we've underexploited digital. We could be doing much more on that front. But we also, fundamentally, we need to give people hope that we can make a difference to their working lives. I agree. I mean, I agree absolutely. It's all about hope. You have to, as Harvey Milk says, you've got to give people hope. It's, it's, it's so true. But I was struck by what you said about, about, about resources and, and about scaling up, as, as, it, as it were. We can do anything we want. We just can't do everything we want. So if the thing that we want most, to take the, the Baker's Union Fantastic campaign in, in, in a couple of branches of, of McDonald's, if the, if the thing we want is to celebrate that success... Does it not automatically follow that if we all, all of us in the movement, pull together and say, this is our number one story for this week, this is what we're going yeah. to push down, all the channels, media channels we, we, we've got, that maximises the, the opportunity of, of getting something. Without doubt. And that's another lesson we could learn from the pioneers, isn't it? That there are moments in history where we really have to pull together. I think we did it in respect of resisting the Trade Union Act, the uh, anti-trade union laws, yet more of them that the Conservative government brought in recently, where the movement really pulled together to do our best to gut that piece of legislation. We wanted to defeat it, didn't succeed, but we did remove a lot of the worst elements, you know, and it's still pretty vicious. But when it comes to organising, what better cause could there be? You know, you look at some of these campaigns that our unions are running, whether that's Sports Direct or the picture house uh, cinemas where those young workers are still fighting for a living wage, or McDonald's. These are public-facing jobs, very often, where we could come together as a movement and say, this is, this is how we live solidarity. We don't just talk it. This is how we live it through organising. And we're all going to be out there next year showing our support and encouraging those young workers to be part of our movement. So how, how are we going to get the consistency of, of, of message? I mean, this, you know, I, I'm conscious of the fact that there are many multi-union workplaces and the unions have found a way generally to coexist. How, what's stopping us doing that at a national level? Or, or, or actually, does it happen at a national level? It just doesn't happen enough. I, I agree that very often at a grassroots level, people get it. <laughs> Um, and of course at a national leadership level I think increasingly people understand it too you know we need to return to some of those basic truths as far as most people out there are concerned it's not about the initials of an individual union it's the whole trade union movement and our faith all depends on each other but it, it's it's also about putting that into practice and I think we need to be more strategic about recognising where the new front lines are and recognising that, you know, any group of workers is only as strong 
as the weakest group of workers in well, the economy. That's for sure the race to the bottom uh, paradigm, if you like. That, that's, that, that's why so. we all have an interest. And we've seen this in other countries too, where, for example, teachers recognise that their own students are workers too, and that they're very often being treated badly. And because they care about their students, but also because they recognise industrially that as long as their students are being treated badly, they as teachers won't have as much industrial power as they could have if all workers were organised. So we all have an interest in making sure that our resources as a movement are going to the right places and that we're bringing as many people into membership as we can, but also critically spreading collective bargaining. But we may have to find new ways to do that collective bargaining when we've got employers who are resistant to recognising that basic democracy, that workers should have a voice at work. It, 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 does that mean, then, that, that, that we need to look very carefully and really, really develop our thinking about that group of people who are not em em employees, they're not self-employed, they're workers. And I'm thinking particularly of, of, of the, the recent cases, delighted to see that, 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 that Uber's appeal was, was thrown out at the Employment yeah. Appeal Tribunal and horrified when Uber said, oh, we'll have to find a way to get round this somehow. Does, does, does that mean that there is going to be a particular emphasis on, on developing our, our, our work on, on workers? It's certainly, we're certainly focused on the new insecure. Very often they are young and uh, they should have... Uh, worker status very often they're low paid too but we know that they're not hostile to unions they just don't know much about us and they can't see how we could make a difference I think increasingly we're showing that we can we've used organizing for sure but we've also used legal strategies as we saw so fantastically with the, the GMB on the Uber case and of course unison showing you know at a very basic level workers across the board would not be able to afford to take a case to an employment tribunal if Unison hadn't taken the government to the Indeed. Supreme Court. And that's important because it's not, you know, obviously relatively few cases go all the way to a tribunal. It takes a lot of courage to take a case, even if you can afford to do it, even if it's free or even if you're backed by your union. But the point is the signal it sends to employers because by introducing employment tribunal fees, the government was saying to employers, you can do what you like, because no individual worker is going to have a chance of calling you to account. And so, you know, again, these are demonstrations of why collective power is so important, because only a union could have taken on the government and beaten them in the Supreme Court. Absolutely, for sure. And the, the Trade Union Act is all about inhibiting unions to be to be able to look after our members in, in, that, in that sense. Talking of the government, though, so much would be easier if we had a sympathetic government. I mean, I think the tide in the country has turned in terms of people saying some things are just not fair, not right. But nevertheless, we have a hung parliament. The polls suggest that there may be a hung parliament in the next election, whenever that is. There's the uncertainty over Brexit. In order to try and create the most favourable environment possible, We've got well-established links with the Labour Party. Uh, we've got links of sorts with the Liberal Democrats, the Greens, the SNP, and, and so on. Should we talk more to the Tories? I'm thinking particularly of people like Philip Blonde and Respublica, who say some, some kind of interesting things about fairness and work and, 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 and so on. Is, is this a community that we're perhaps not spending enough time on? Or should we actually... Or, or are they beyond the pale? They're actually, you know... 
it's a lost cause. Well, I've, I've always been clear that as trade unions, our first duty is to represent working people. And we have to do that whether we like an individual employer or whether we like the colour of the government in power. We have to do our best to get a seat at the table and put a case for improving the lot of working people. So, you know, that's about getting your hands dirty, but you have to be in there. Now, you know, we've all been around the block a few times. We know the difference between getting access, getting through the door, and actually having influence and changing uh, the way that governments behave, or indeed employers. But I think in respect of the government, I'm clear that one of our most effective ways of trying to put pressure on them is by winning hearts and minds of the public generally. And that's why you know, we've been campaigning so hard on job quality, our great jobs agenda, pushing for the right for every worker to have a fair wage, a safe working environment, respect at work, a voice at work, and the opportunity to training to get on. Um, and I think that has changed the conversation in Britain, that it's no longer good enough for the government to tell us that a job, any job, is good enough. I think increasingly the public are worried and concerned about this huge growth of insecure and rubbish jobs on low pay. And increasingly people are saying, look, we're going to have to change the way we do things and create an economy that will generate good jobs in the parts of the country that need them most. We're talking a week before the budget. Realistically, what do you think we can hope for? I mean, obviously the Chancellor's notion of a, of a public pay cap has gone. You know, whatever, however he dresses up, he, he's had to break the public pay cap to address some particular issues in certain parts of, of, of the public sector. He's also had to break it um, less, in a less high-profile way in order to comply with judgments on, on equal pay that have come down, cases that have been run by Prospect, for example, in the Met Office. So, 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 so the credibility of the policy is in tatters, but I can't help feeling he's going to lift the cap when he gets up next week. Well, there's, in any case, a big difference between lifting the cap and winning a real pay increase for people, because, you know, with inflation rising, giving somebody 1%, 2%, it is not good enough. Just That's, falling behind less quickly. Yeah, let yes. alone catching up with where people should be had they had decent pay rises since the crash. And of course, this is a problem across the board. It's not just public sector workers. Pri private sector workers have struggled too, and workers across the board are still £38 a week on average worse off than they were before that global bankers crash. We will be highlighting public service workers and we have been putting the pressure on very strongly, we met the Chancellor, calling for a real pay increase for all public service workers and critically that it must be fully funded. We don't want to be put in the position and nor do the public service workers we represent of saying we're going to harm services in order to pay for your pay rise. And our other priority is no cherry picking. This can't be a case of just um, a, a kind of popularity contest in pay that they know that everybody thinks the firefighters at Grenfell were heroes, so they'll yes. get a bit extra, but, yeah. but the women and the men in the control room get nothing. You know, it can't be picking and choosing. It's got, I think, all the nurses and firefighters and teachers I talk to 
feel really passionately that public services is a team, it's a family, and they feel really strongly that everybody should be treated decently and they don't want to be divided one against the, the, the other. There's, there's a tide that's turned, hasn't there, about the narrative about public service, the value, yeah. the importance, the yeah. c- contribution it makes to the nation's pro- productivity, and it's almost, you know... Well, exactly, and this, this is... You see, I think that, that the Chancellor should be really focusing on what I think is a number one priority for the country, which is how do we get wages rising again? How do we get growth going? And the problem is that in many parts of the economy, labour is too cheap. That's why employers are not investing in new kit machinery. That's why we're lagging behind so many other countries in terms of investment. Britain's in the bottom three alongside Greece and Portugal. Um, And that's why we're not getting the productivity improvements that we need in order to generate you know, the national wealth to fund our hospitals and schools and public services. So actually getting to grips with why pay is stagnant at best is a really important objective, ought to be an important objective for the Chancellor. And one good way of encouraging the private sector to up its game is by improving something that the Treasury does control public servants' pay because that can set the benchmark in local economies for pay more generally. It puts money in people's pockets. They're more likely to spend it in local businesses and shops and you can get kickstart the economy back into that virtuous cycle. But at the moment, I'm not holding my breath. Well, you heard it here and, and Chancellor, I'm sure you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he told me he never misses an episode. You've got your steer there, Chancellor. How to go down in history as the truly great reforming Chancellor? I'm afraid I'm not holding my breath, either, Francis. Before before we get, before we, we go, um, I've noticed that, that, that this January you will have been in this role for five oh. years. Time flies. What what what's it been like? I mean, <laughs> I mean what, what, what's what's been the best thing? What's been the worst thing? What's been the most surprising thing in a good way? That you know, the biggest frustration. Well, it certainly hasn't been boring, has it? That's I mean, for we've sure. had two referendums, two elections, um, the most vicious anti-trade union legislation in in a generation. Um, so, I think I can safely say that we, as a trade union movement, have not been idle over this last period. Uh, there's a lot that we need to keep fighting for, and I always think one of our great strengths is resilience. But what keeps me going? is going around the country, talking to grassroots activists. I mean, I was in Truro recently, Teesside before then. And if, you know, when it is tough, if you ever need a lift, then it's it's talking to our reps who do incredible work, who are really up for building the trade union movement, reaching out to young people, you know, resetting that balance of power in the country that so many people feel has gone wrong, badly wrong. And without doubt, with Brexit, uh, the fourth industrial revolution, you know, we have got some massive challenges on our hand. But I, I feel really confident that the trade union movement is up for it. And we're going to stick together and we will win that better deal for working people. That's great. Francis O'Grady, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. What I really loved listening to Frances then was how she talks about pay and the importance of pay in the wider economy, not just the moral reason why, 
but also that that business case specifically how she does it where you can understand what it is that she's talking about i always feel whenever i listen to francis talk about something that i understand it um and i know a lot of people who are outside the uni movement who are friends of mine family and all that kind of stuff who actually really um think she's a great communicator in that kind of way so we're going to 150 years next year in, with indeed, with a indeed. really engaging general secretary I, I i think so i think so and uh, I, I mean i agree the the the, the the way in which raising the public sector pay cap, making sure it's fully funded, is, is an economic imperative for the health of the country, not yeah. just the well-being of the workers inv- involved, I think is an argument that, that is compelling and that isn't made often enough, yeah. uh, really, because actually it's so compelling, why would any chancellor worth, worth the name on the office door not, not listen to it and yeah. do something with it? Yeah, yeah. Um, and as you say, 150 years of the TUC next year. That's you know, I think there's going to be a lot of good stuff coming over there. And and as we discussed before, we heard from Francis, there needs to be. Yeah. So, so that's good. That's for next year. <laughs> In Union One, 21 <laughs> terms, we've got stuff happening before then, haven't we? We we have next month. Well, this month, in fact, we have some stuff going on. Um, we're releasing our Brexit toolkit on the 30th of November. Uh, tickets are available on the website to go come along and have a little look at that and I'll be talking through what Brexit means for unions internally and how we can make ourselves Brexit ready which should be really interesting Uh, the other thing to say is that we're doing this massive piece of work around young workers and what young workers think about unions Um, specifically again (laughs) young activists and their experience in in unions so if you are a young activist and want to tell us about your experience in the union movement or if you know a young activist and who'd like to be involved, then go over to youngworker at unions21.org.uk and sign yourself up for one of our events coming in November and December. That should be great. So the, the website address again is www.unions21.org.uk. All the information about the events Becky's spoken about, the latest blogs from our regular contributors and so on are, are, are all there. And... If you have an idea for the f- for future podcasts, uh, if you've got an idea of, of, of the things we should be talking about, we would love to have your views on what the discussion, decide to shape the discussion should be. Email us at info at unions21.org.uk. We'd very much like to hear from you and to have your company. Yes, indeed. Look forward to seeing and hearing those ideas. So, uh, until the next podcast, this is me, Simon Sapper. And me, Becky Wright. Saying thanks ever so much for listening and goodbye. Bye. Podcast was presented by Simon Sapper and Becky Wright. It was a Makes You Think production.